ticklish business any way you look at it. Come on, we'll stick together. Ticklish Business, the podcast devoted to honoring and deconstructing classic movies. I'm Kristen Lopez, and I'm joined by the amazing Kimberly Pierce once again. Kim, how are you? Hello. Good. How are you? I'm doing great. Drea and Sam are off this episode, but we are fortunate to have a fantastic guest with us. I'm honored to say we have wonderful Bob Coster with us. Bob, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Good morning to uh, Kristen and Kimberly. Bob, I am so happy that you agreed to be on the podcast. For people that don't know, and if you don't know, I don't know how you're listening to this podcast for over 100 episodes, but Bob is the son of the fantastic director Henry Coster, one of my favorites. If you've listened to the show long enough, you've probably heard me mention my love for the unfinished dance which is a movie that I want more people to see. And we'll talk about that movie, I'm sure, during this episode. Bob, the question I always am fascinated by when I talk to children of people in the studio era, was there a moment in your life when you realized that your dad's job was different than others? Do you mean different than other directors or (laughs) different than other jobs? Other jobs. Yeah, yeah. It was about 20 minutes ago. (laughs) When I was a little boy, it was just a job. He went to work. He came home. Or he didn't because I didn't live with him. My parents were divorced when I was two years old. But I knew he went to work. I knew he came home. He was with his uh, second wife, Peggy, who was a dear, dear friend of mine. And my two half-brothers, still very close to one of them, one of them passed away. To me, it was just a job like a policeman or a fireman or doorman at Grauman's Chinese. or You know who the doorman was, by the way, don't you? No, I do not. You don't? I don't. It was Lockard Martin, who also played Gort in The Day the Earth Day Really? Yeah, he was the doorman because he was, I think, seven foot two, Mm -hmm. very tall. They had a special uniform made for him, but he could play the giant robot in the movie very easily. That is awesome. Okay, this episode's perfect already just because Uh I got that factoid. (laughs) Did you grow up in LA? Parents were separated when I was two years old, but my father and I had visiting privileges once a week, sometimes twice. They were sort of friends, my mother and father, so it wasn't a set thing. But it was usually on the weekend, Sundays. I'd go over, play with my brothers, and then we'd all go and have dinner someplace. Sometimes dad was there, sometimes he wasn't. Sometimes he was away on location. Sometimes he was there, but he wasn't. When he was working on a picture, He was very focused, very single-minded. He would work all through the weekend. So even though I was at his house, he was locked in the office and there would be a stream of actors and writers and producers and prop men and whatever he needed to talk to. 
and he would be working all through the weekend, except for the dinner. And at the dinner, I would be seated at one end of the table, and he would be seated all the way at the other end, usually, and around him would be more of the people he was working with. So I never got to talk to him much during dinner. You know, I only got to know him after we both retired. Monica on Reed and some other celebrity children were able to spend time on set. Was that a similar situation? Yeah, I spent time on set, but not much. I was in The Bishop's Wife. Really? Remember the ice skating scene? Mm-hmm. That's what I wondered. Well, uh-huh. When the camera opens up on the ice skating scene, you see in silhouette a little guy. I was eight years old sitting on a bench, eating a hot dog. Camera pans off of him, and you see the people skating in the background. And then it pans over to uh, Cary Grant and Loretta Young. The scene started with me. Wow. That is awesome. I'm very proud of that. I would be proud of that if that was the only thing I ever did in my life, just Mm -hmm. get, get to hang out on that set. Did you get to interact with Cary and Loretta during the filming of that? No. No, I only interacted with two people that I remember. Well, three people, David Niven. But June Allison and I talked a bit when Dad was doing the picture with June Allison. I can't remember which one. June Allison, David Niven, Jay Robinson. It was a remake of a Carol Lombard. Uh, My Man Godfrey. Thank you. My Man Godfrey. See, Kimberly paid her way. (laughs) (laughs) That's why I have Kim here, because she picks up where I completely blank. (laughs) Yeah, my man, Godfrey. The other one was uh, Marlon Brando. Oh, really? Who was one of the most brilliant men I've ever met. He was well-read, literate, intelligent, insightful. To walk around with him was like being in school. I mean, he was just an incredible person. He used to escape. This was when he was doing Napoleon, Desiree, Mm -hmm. Gene Simmons, and a bunch of other people. Michael Rennie was in it. It was at the height of his fame. And he couldn't leave his house because his house was surrounded by press, paparazzi. And they were just waiting for a, a glimpse of him so they could get a picture they could sell to the newspapers. So he was trapped in his house, but he had a back door through which he could escape. And he had a car back there that was a nondescript car. And he and his then wife, the Indian lady, what was her name? Oh, gosh. I should know this. She was an actress too. I'll, I'll get mm-hmm. Anyway, they would escape through the back door and take this nondescript car uh, and drive it through Beverly Hills to Dad's house so that he could relax with Dad's pool and not have all of the photographers out in front. He was a very private person. He didn't want mm-hmm. to be disturbed by that. And I can't blame him. They were absolutely pitiless, the people who were following him around. The other thing was that there was one day, 
I remember I was at dad's house. This was back in the, in the 50s, obviously, or early 60s. In those days, you could leave your front door unlocked. Nobody was going to come in and, and take anything or, or even take you. We were in the house, and the front door opened, and Marlon Brando came in and went into the living room and lay down on the couch and went to sleep. He didn't say a word to anybody. We all realized that's Marlon Brando there. And so we were all tiptoeing around the house. And eventually, after an hour or two, whatever it was, he woke up and he went back out the front door and left. As you would. It's a Brando thing. (laughs) Never said a word to anybody. And it was okay. It wasn't like he was being rude. He just wanted to grab a little catnap and then go home or then go to wherever he was going afterwards. Brando was married to Anakashvi at that time. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, that's before he married Movita. Yes, yeah. Yeah, Anakashvi, who was also very nice and very beautiful. Very beautiful. And I guess a good actress. I only saw her in one movie, The White Tower. I think that's what it was. With Spencer Tracy and Bob Wagner and Stacey Harris. Good picture about mountain climbing. I know that you eventually went into the industry yourself. Was there a pressure in terms of being his son and wanting to be in the industry? I know some, like Preston Sturgis' son said, he definitely felt like maybe it wasn't the move for him to make because he'd be compared. Absolutely not. Absolutely Mm. not. In fact, my father practically insisted that I not go into the movie business because As he put it, although he didn't act that way, and it certainly didn't treat him that way most of the time, he said it's a very cruel business. And in many ways, he was right, because you work on a picture for four months, for six months, very intensely. And the people on the picture, they become your family, almost more than your wife and kids at home and so forth. Because you're spending 18 hours a day with them. You're lucky. You go home and go to sleep. And then you get up the next day and you go back to work. He felt it was a cruel business because that family that you make during the picture, you leave that picture. Either you go right on to another picture, which is what he did. And it's what I did most of the time. And sometimes I went directly to the unemployment bureau, but you suddenly can't get any of those members of your family on the phone anymore. Right. Very few. Very few. I can count on one half of one hand. Well, two-fifths of one hand. The number of people who are still friends of mine that I worked with in the movie business. I still have acquaintances but I have no close friends. My close friends are all from elsewhere. What was it that made you want to get into the industry? Was it growing up around it? What was your memory of learning this is what you wanted to do? Put yourself in my shoes. My father was a movie director. My mother was an actress. My stepmother was an actress and quite a well-known one back in late 30s and early 40s. My father's grandparents 
and I have pictures of them on my wall. He was an opera star mm -hmm. in Berlin. My mother's parents were the two most famous actresses on the Hungarian stage in Budapest, Kira, Kira Erne and, and Sholti Ermin, and they were both comedians and singers. Mm -hmm. That's how they lived. You went over to grandpa's house and suddenly he was on. Right. He was performing. My stepmother's father was a famous artist. He did that famous painting of Marilyn Monroe. Earl Moran, he was quite a well-known artist of poster and pinup girls. I've got my father, I've got my mother, my stepmother, my great-grandparents, my grandparents, my brother was an actor. Nick was in several of Dad's pictures. Mm -hmm. Now my son is an assistant director. How could I not? It's the family business. You never thought of anything else. Mm -hmm. It would have been unnatural for me to try to sell shoes. <laughs> Very true. That is a testament that you were able to jump in, follow in all those footsteps and not really feel that pressure, that it was so normalized. When I first got into the Directors Guild after I got out of UCLA, I went to UCLA. I have a degree in motion pictures. You know what that's worth? I have a master's <laughs> in film, so I know, yeah. I have a master's <laughs> in English. So yeah, I'm right there with you. <laughs> oh, there you go. There you go. So we could both work at McDonald's. I got into the Directors Guild and immediately moved to New York, where they didn't know who Dad was. They knew the famous directors, Cecil DeMille, John Ford, John Huston, Henry Hathaway, but they didn't know who Henry Coster was because Dad, because of his background, did not want to be publicized unless it helped him get another picture and more work. There was a reason. Dad was born in Berlin. And as a Jewish person in Berlin, although he didn't recognize that because outside of having a bar mitzvah, he never went to temple regularly and didn't go to shul. And so he didn't conceive of himself as being Jewish. And neither did most of his friends. When Hitler became president, suddenly everything turned. And suddenly everybody recognized that he was Jewish. He had a group at his studio at Babelsberg. And this is a tradition in Germany, might still be, I don't know. But it's called the tradition of the Stammtisch. What it is, it's a particular table at a particular restaurant. And after work at the studio, the same group of producers, directors, writers, actors sometimes all gather at this restaurant and they go there after work and they have a beer and maybe some cold cuts or something. And then after an hour, an hour and a half, they go home and they have dinner with their family. But they talk about what they did during the day. They discuss what they want to do tomorrow. They exchange ideas for different ways to edit scenes and it's a healthy thing. The day after Hitler became president, dad went to the Stammtisch and they told him he couldn't sit there anymore because he was Jewish. Now, these are people whom he'd 
sat with for two or three years, day after day, and were good friends. And they told him he had to go to another table. Or maybe he shouldn't even be in that restaurant. So he knew he had to leave. I know that IMDb lists a story that your dad was forced to flee Germany because he actually knocked out a Nazi officer who insulted him. That story sounds utterly fantastic. Is that a story that you recall hearing? It's a story that I was about to repeat to you, but you've just... Yeah. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I've totally, totally spoiled the punchline. Way to steal the letter, oh Kristen. Goodness. I'm sorry. I'm just going to sit over here now. <laughs> Do you mind if I recite some Shakespeare or something? I'll, I'll read from a book I was interested you, You're welcome yeah. to do that, too. <laughs> he went to his bank. Now, his bank was the credit union at the studio at Babelsberg. Babelsberg was the name of the universal pictures of Germany, of Berlin, which at that time was where the productions were. Now it's Munich. It's no longer Berlin. But Babelsberg Studio still exists. When I was in Berlin a few years back, they gave me a tour of it, and it was very interesting. I liked it. And it was huge. I mean, they had 20, 25 sound stages. They had quite a bit of stuff going on. Most of it was TV shows. They would have the morning show. They would have a couple of soap operas. They would have other things, like a studio today would. The bank was at Babelsberg. He had his money in the bank. Now, you know, when you go to a bank for a period of time, a year, two years, you get to know one of the tellers or two of the tellers, and you walk into the bank, and they say, hi, Kirsten. Hopefully, it's not Kimberly. So he'd gone to this bank for two years, and he had some savings built up. And because of the Stamtisch incident and a couple of other incidents, I have the movie here, one of his, the last movie he made in Berlin, which was called Das Hässliche Mädchen, The Ugly Girl. There's a scene in The Ugly Girl where it takes place in an accounting office. And all of the extras who were supposed to be accountants were supposed to show up wearing dark or black suits or dark brown suits. Didn't matter, it was black and white picture because it was everybody was very serious and so forth. And this was a couple of weeks before Hitler became president. Dad was directing this picture as Hitler became president. One of the extras who was supposed to play an accountant in that scene came wearing his Nazi uniform. And Dad said to him, you have to change into a dark suit because that's not appropriate for an accounting office. It'd be appropriate for a police station, but it's not appropriate for an accounting office. And the guy said, no, I'm wearing my suit because I'm a Nazi and I'm proud of being a Nazi and I'm going to wear my uniform. And dad said, well, then we can't use you in the picture. And the man said, what do you mean? And dad said, you're fired. Or go to another soundstage where you can work, but you can't be here. And the man left the stage, and as he left, he said to Dad, 
when Hitler becomes president, you wouldn't dare tell other people what they can do. And then he walked out. And dad knew that was true. He was going to be in trouble directing if he decided to stick around after Hitler right. became president. That, and there were several other incidents, but those are the two that stand out, or the three, the three that stand out. So he knew he would have to leave. And he went to the bank to draw out his money from his savings account. And he walked in and the teller was there that always serviced him. Dad went over to him and said, I'd like to withdraw my money here. Teller said, what's your name? The day before he said, hi, Henry. Now he said, what's your name? He was wearing the Nazi armband and he was in full SA uniform. Dad said, Henry Coster. The teller said, you don't have any money here. And dad said, I have money. And he took the passbook out of his pocket and handed it to the teller. And without looking at it, the teller tore it up and threw it on the floor. And dad said, I want to see the manager. And the teller said, Mr. Schmidt is not here. And dad said, then I'll wait for Mr. Schmidt. And he sat down. In those days, Tellers had desks. They didn't have teller's kitchen. So dad sat down. Teller waited a few minutes and he realized dad wasn't going to leave. So he picked up the phone. And you remember when you dial a number? You probably yes. Rotary yep, phones yep. are going to make a comeback in one day. I'm hoping. <laughs> teller dialed a number and he said, hello, Mr. Schmidt. He said, I have a Jew here named Coster who wants to take his money out. Okay, I'll tell him. And he hung up and he turned to dad and he said, Mr. Schmidt isn't here. And dad said, you were just talking to him on the phone. And the teller made a bad mistake. He said, you filthy Jew bastard. Are you calling me a liar? And dad lost his temper and he picked up the telephone and knocked him out with it. And the teller is lying on the floor and dad's pummeling him. And Mr. Schmidt came. And Mr. Schmidt pulled dad off the teller and hustled him out the front door of the bank, took out his wallet and took some money out of his wallet, mm -hmm. handed it to dad. And he said, look, go to the railroad station and leave the country. And you better do it right now because if they catch you, they'll kill you. And dad went to the railroad. He didn't go home and pack. He didn't do anything. He got in his car. He went to the railroad station. He was lucky. He happened to have his passport in his pocket. He went to the railroad station and he left the country on his lunch hour. That's a movie in itself. That is. That is the IMDb didn't do that story justice. Well, it's your chills road. just hearing it. I knew I only had so much space to write. So. <laughs> he left the country in 1933. He went right to Paris. That was the closest place he could go to. And anyway, he knew a lot of people in Paris. And for four months or six months, he was writing. And German directors, he was quite a famous writer. And German directors would come from Berlin to Paris. And he would write scripts for them. And then they would go back and produce the movies. So there are movies, I have a couple here, that were done in Germany that dad wrote. I even have a couple of French pictures that he wrote. Then when he was in Paris for four months, six months, whatever it was, 
he got a telegram from an old friend of his from Berlin, whom he had known in Berlin. They never worked together, but they worked on adjacent sound stages and they used to have lunch together. And they were good friends. At that time, this other guy said to dad, one day we're going to make a movie together. Dad said, yeah, sure. Because everybody says that. Well, his name was Joe Pasternak. Okay, there we go. He was in Budapest producing pictures for Universal. And dad would have loved to work for Universal. He got a wire from Pasternak saying, come to Budapest and you can direct. And he got on the next train. He went to Budapest. He started directing. I have the two pictures he did in Budapest. And then he and Pasternak moved to Vienna. And I have the two pictures they did there together. And then in 1936, they came to the United States and started doing the Deanna Durbin pictures. Now, in Budapest, Dad, not only did he not speak Hungarian, but he didn't know anybody except Joe Pasternak. But Dad, I mentioned before, was very serious when he was working on a picture. That's what he did. He didn't do anything else. He'd forget to eat lunch. He'd forget to eat dinner. He didn't go out with girls. He was lucky he married Peggy because she was always home when he came home and she took care of him. So he went to Budapest and after he was there for two weeks, three weeks, they were working very hard to get the first picture done. Pasternak said to him, look, we've been working together for a long time. You're a good friend. Why don't we go out to dinner tonight? You bring your girlfriend or whoever you're with. And I'll bring my girlfriend. We'll have a nice double date. And dad said, well, mm-hmm. I'd love to, but I don't have a girlfriend. And Pastor Nick said, all right, what are you looking for in a girlfriend? Dad said, it's easy. Three things. One, she's got to have a good sense of humor. Two, she's got to love good music because I have music all the time. I'd have it playing now if I weren't on with you, by the way. And three, she has to have good teeth. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So, Pasternak introduced them to my mother. They were married three weeks later. It's a true story. They were married three weeks later. Joe Pasternak with all the connections. (laughs) His son, Michael, is still a very close friend of mine. Wow. That's the thing that I love about the studio era, Mm -hmm. because now we talk so much about auteur theory, that you can identify a director's films based on these themes, and you can tell a Kubrick from a mile away, you can tell a Spielberg from a mile away. I often feel that with classic studio era stuff, the great directors tend to get ignored because their work is not subscribing to that auteur theory. Michael Curtiz directed a billion types of different films. Your dad did all sorts of different movies. How do you look at auteur theory when it comes to this studio era? What do you think are the themes that your dad really wanted to showcase in the films that he worked on? That's a very difficult question because I tried to talk to him about that. Now, going back for a moment that you remember, he had to leave 
Germany on his lunch hour, but the German government didn't particularly like him. And if he went back to Germany, he'd probably be killed and you would be interviewing somebody else. His feelings about politics and about publicity and about being a public person were that he really didn't want to be because he didn't want anybody to find him. He'd rather, the Germans never found out where he worked. He'd rather just make his movies, make a little money, keep his family in food and shelter, and go to work doing what he enjoyed doing, and go home night and not have to worry about anything. So consequently, I was never able to talk to him about politics. And that wasn't easy because Ronald Reagan lived across the street. (laughs) Ronald Reagan used to come over and try to involve dad in political discussions. And that was one of the funniest things I ever saw. You are the second person to come on this podcast in as many weeks and have a Reagan story. So I feel like Reagan's slowly trying to invade this podcast from beyond. (laughs) Dad and Reagan knew each other. Reagan used to come over and have coffee in the morning. I remember I was there a couple of times. Ronnie would, Uncle Ronnie would come in and sit down in the kitchen and dad would pour some coffee and they'd sit and chat, usually about movie things. Reagan would almost invariably try to involve him in some kind of political speech, and it never worked. Dad would not discuss politics. No way. Reagan had his ranch. You know that, the ranch. Simi Simi Valley. No, Sandy Nesville. Okay. Kim's a Colorado girl. She doesn't get to hang out in California nearly as much. uh, (laughs) I have family in Colorado. My son lives in Florence, or just outside of Florence. It's south okay. of Denver. I'm in the Boulder you know, area. If I tell you what the biggest building in town is, you'll recognize it immediately. It's the Supermax, the big prison. Okay, okay. Right. No, right where that is. Yep. <laughs> Kristen, how come your friend knows about prisons? Uh, that is a question you'd have to ask her. Because it's have... the big one. I think they've driven past <laughs> it on the way out of the state. <laughs> so Reagan had his ranch, and he loved his ranch. He'd invite Dad and Peggy up there. They'd go horseback riding. The kids could play with the little animals and so forth. But after he had left, it wasn't Death Valley days. There was a TV series he was doing. He was sort of down on his luck. There was a chance that he would have to sell the ranch because it wasn't supporting itself. So what he decided was that he'll make the ranch into a working ranch. Actually, his manager decided that. And if he could show that he's trying to make money with the ranch, then they can let him keep it even if it loses money every year because it becomes a working farm. So every weekend when Ron came back from his ranch, he'd always collected eggs from the hens up there. And he'd bring back eggs and sell them to people in the neighborhood. So it was a working ranch, right? Made eggs. We inherited different things from dad. My brother has a check that he had written for the eggs to Ronald Reagan. And it is endorsed on the back. Peter 
had it, the glasses on both sides so you could see the back of the check. And he had endorsed it with gratitude, Ronald Reagan, because <laughs> it helped him to keep his ranch. I have a canceled check that I got from Preston Surge's son. It's on the, not the exact year of my birthday, but the day of my birthday. And it's Preston Sturges. It's a $30 check to a music store. So checks are really the unsung souvenir of the studio era. Oh, I know. I know. <laughs> anyway, so dad didn't want to talk about anything political. He really didn't want much in the way of publicity. And consequently, people really don't know him. So I was able to move from Los Angeles to New York, the name Coster, even in the movie industry there, did not ring a bell. That's what I wanted. Because before that, I had tried to get work in Los Angeles as an assistant director. I'd go to a studio and I would go to the production department. I, I'm available. I'm in the guild and I'd like to work. And they would say, oh, you're Henry Coster's kid. Hey. And from then on, I was like Henry Coster's kid. Although I enjoyed being Henry Coster's kid, I wanted to be Bob Coster and I wanted to make my exactly. own. Mm -hmm. And I did. I stayed in New York for 11 years. I was there from 62 to 73. I moved back in 73. And during all that time, very few people knew who my father was. I was on my own. And I became quite well known for being a production person. I worked on a lot of very good movies. Hello, Dolly, Valley of the Dolls, Up the Down Staircase, Generation, Pendulum. I had quite a career in New York working in production. And just because I was good, not for any other reason, not because somebody wanted to make points with dad. And by the time I moved back, of course, dad had retired. His last picture was 1965. The Singing Nun with Debbie Reynolds and Ricardo Montalban. Ricardo I still need to see that one. Has singing and Debbie Reynolds and Ricardo. And Ricardo, uh, yeah. The nuns thing <laughs> is kind of ancillary to me. It seems like it would be my thing. I haven't seen it either. I haven't seen all of Dad's pictures. I've never seen the Goya picture. I have three or four pictures sitting on my table next to my DVD player that I would really like to see. <laughs> and I will probably in the next month or so. Anyway. Oh, New York. Yes. Okay. It worked because by the time I came back to Los Angeles in 1973, dad had retired eight years prior. And the new generation of producers, directors, they never heard of him. And so whatever I did, I did on my own. One of the satisfying things was before I moved to New York and I would meet somebody in the movie industry. Hi, I'm Bob Coster. Oh, are you related to Henry Coster? After I moved back, when dad met somebody, they would say to him, oh, are you related to Bob Coster? You know? <laughs> so the tables turned. Watching several of, of your dad's movies, and I've talked about this on the podcast, I'm a nerd who has loved so many of his movies. Anytime I see his name, I'm like, oh, it's a Kristen thing. I'll be into it. What he captures and stuff, whether that's Flower Drum Song or the two films he did with Jimmy Stewart, with the two that I've seen, there were five, yes. I've only seen two. 
I will say that I haven't seen the probably the most famous one. Harvey? I haven't seen I haven't seen Harvey. You I know. haven't seen Harvey. <laughs> I'm working on it. <laughs> That's all. I'm finished. <laughs> I knew I should have just lied and said, "Yeah, I've totally seen it." It's a wonderful. That's what I've heard. I've seen Mr. Hobbs takes a vacation, and I've seen She's Mine. Mr. Hobbs is the one I haven't seen. Oh, and I love both of those. Jimmy Stewart and his put-upon dad phase. By the way, in Mr. Hobbs Takes a Vacation, there was one actress who was a favorite of the crew because she would leave the door to her dressing room open while she was changing. Oh, my gosh. Uh, wasn't Maureen O'Hara, was it? <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> but Maureen O'Hara had a makeup man, mm-hmm. and he made her up from the waist up. Really? Yeah, <laughs> he didn't want to have that makeup edge mm-hmm. around her collar. That's interesting. I would have never thought of that. <laughs> you learn something new every day. I love how he captures... Not just the average person. There's that sense of magic in the reality of it. Like The Bishop's Wife is a prime example. That's such a movie steeped in reality and the feelings of being put upon by life. But then there's that added element of magic. I don't know. There's just a feeling watching your dad's films that I can't convey what it is, but I feel it when I watch his movies. Dad was a writer. He made his reputation in Berlin by writing short stories. He was a famous short story writer. I'll give you a a quick example. And he was famous for this kind of thing. And if you look at his pictures, many of them have this quality to them, where the end of it is the twist from the beginning. So this was one of his more famous short stories. An elderly lady living alone. And she has a pet parrot. And every day she goes to the parrot. The parrot doesn't talk. Every day she goes to the parrot and she says, talk to me. Can't you say something? Say something. Talk to me. One day she has a heart attack and falls dead in front of the cage. And the parrot looks down at her and says, can't you talk to me? Talk to me. Uh. That was his sense of humor. He always took something that is basically very human mm-hmm. and did this to it, twisted it a little bit. Exactly. I don't know any other director, and this is where I show for the unfinished dance, which again, it's my favorite movie. That's a film that you think it starts out as this delightful tale of little girls at a ballet school. It's got Margaret O'Brien, all this fun whimsy and whatnot. And then it culminates with. Margaret O'Brien's character pretty much hobbling a woman and breaking her leg so she can't dance. It gets this very dark patina to it. You're like, wait, we just started with happy ballerinas. How did we get here? And I love it so much. (laughs) That's dad. Dad considered motion pictures the modern day campfire. You get a bunch of people sitting around who don't necessarily know each other, not very well anyway, and they're all appreciating the same thing at the same time. And it's got to be a good story. It's got to be a good yeah. story. 
Did you ever hear a bad story at a campfire? <laughs> I miss the campfire era. I need to recreate that in my backyard or something. When I was in Girl Scouts, <laughs> we were around the stove. <laughs> I did have campfires when I was a kid. They sent me away to summer camp. So I know about the campfire tradition. And it's a very strong tradition. And dad, he never would admit this. He also, by the way, never would admit that any of his pictures had any kind of a social comment in them. He didn't believe in that. The picture that he made when he left Berlin, the ugly girl, Das Hessliche Mädchen, uh, with Genia Nikolaeva and Dolly Haas, is about a girl who isn't that pretty, who goes to work at a company in the accounting department. The other people are making fun of her because she isn't very pretty. And toward the end of the picture, she becomes engaged or marries the president of the company because he sees that she has goodness in something like that. It is unquestionably a feminist picture. It's a picture that you say to yourself, wait a minute, I should live like that. That's the attitude mm -hmm. I should have. And I mentioned that to him. I said, when I saw Hesliche Mädchen, I thought very strongly about that you made this into a, a social comment, really. And he said, for God's sakes, don't tell anybody. And he was serious. <laughs> he wasn't making right. He was serious. He said, I certainly didn't make it for that reason. He said, if I made it, I made it because I enjoy making pictures and I enjoy that people can go into my pictures and when they come out, they feel better than when they went in. Well, it's funny that you mentioned that because I had a similar thought. I was first time watched Take Her, She's Mine, not too, too long ago, within the last few months. And I had studied changing sexuality in the early 60s in college. And as I was watching this movie, it popped into my head. I wish I would have watched this in my college years because the visibility of changing women's ideas, changing towards sex and the evolution of culture. And when you said feminist picture in the last description, I was having thought that with that one too, or there's something buried here. I just thought it was a fascinating film for that reason. And I wish I'd love to need to watch it again. Many of them are. Many of them have buried in them socially conscious mm -hmm. ideas that dad would never admit that he put into his picture. Never. Because he didn't want to call attention to himself. Right. His early 30s stuff, has that been released on DVD? I don't believe it has. Early? No. Remember, he moved to the United States in 1936. Right. But all of the Deanna Durbin pictures... Especially the Durbins right. are out. Have his Berlin in his outside the U.S. work, has that ever been released? No, but I haven't. I haven't because I've been to Berlin and I've gone to the museums there, uh, the film museums, and I've donated some elements to the film museums. Uh, they want that for not payment, but I give you, you give me type of thing, they would give me copies of the films he made. I have all the films he made. 
I'm a completist. So I tend to be like, we need to release everything so that I can see it. Even something like The Bishop's Wife, I've talked about on the podcast here that I feel like religious films of the studio era are different than when we talk about, quote unquote, religious films of modern day, in that something like The Bishop's Wife is accessible to anybody in a way that I feel is very welcoming and positive and just beautiful. I mean, so much of that movie is built to make you feel stuff that I love it in a way that I think is different. That is also buried there in a lot of his stuff Mm -hmm. in terms of faith and believing in something bigger than oneself, even if that's ballet and the unfinished dance. I mean, dance takes on this big religious fervor, which is why Margaret O'Brien feels the need to hobble. I'm sorry. It's just my favorite plot point in all of film. (laughs) It's faith, but it's caged in humanity and something like the Bishop's wife. Yeah, exactly. Did you you like Monty Woolley in The Bishop's Wife? He played the old professor. Mm -hmm. He's good. I confess that I'm not the biggest Monty Woolley fan. Maybe I just haven't watched the right movies, but I do like him a lot in that one. Well, if you haven't seen it, you should. Is uh, The Man Who Came to to Dinner. I have seen that. that (laughs) He made five pictures with Jimmy Stewart. Again, I have not seen the most famous one because I'm horrible and I will rectify that soon. Why do you think their collaboration worked so well? You mean Jimmy Stewart? Working together so often, how did they work off of each other? What kept them continuing to come back to work together? While they were working, and even after, for a period of time, they were very close. And dad trusted Jimmy and Jimmy trusted dad. Now that's a big part of a director's work with actors mm-hmm. is trust. You have to trust that they will deliver. If you're a director, you trust that they will deliver the kind of performance that you see for the character that they're playing, not somebody else. You as a director have to work to modify that if it's not evident, if it's not coming out. And as an actor, you have to trust that the director knows what he or she is doing. So that when you discuss something, like you said that a little too loud for the character, whatever, something, that the director is your ears of your audience. Because you don't have an audience. The audience is the camera. It's not like when you're in a play, there's an audience and they react. They laugh at the funny parts. You can hear them. If it starts to get boring, you can hear them coughing and papers rustling. But normally what you want to hear is just laughter or other audible reactions to something that happened on the You want the audience to be up there on the stage with Mm -hmm. you, living Mm -hmm. that life that you're portraying. That's what you want. Anything that distracts from that is bad. So if a director sees an actor saying something in a way that will suddenly make the audience realize that they're sitting in a theater watching a play. 
he should correct. He should make it all so that the audience lives up there with the characters. The director preserving the vision of the film, being able to protect the vision and being able to convey that to everyone else. I discovered Flower Drum Song this year. I'm shocked that when Crazy Rich Asians came out a couple years ago, people had brought up that up until that movie came out, Flower Drum Song was the only film at the time directed by, looked at by a North American studio to come out in the studio system with a predominantly Asian cast. That did not happen until Crazy Rich Asians came out in what, 2018? Only one actor who was Occidental. Mm -hmm. And that was the gardener in the Sunday Sweet Sunday scene. Because in those days, the gardeners in Los Angeles, anyway, were almost all Oriental. One of dad's uh, senses of humor. (laughs) Was it weird for your dad to handle that? Now we look at the pressure of being a white director and directing a cast of color. But I'm assuming in the time in the 60s when he did that, it was just a job. Never occurred to him. But it wasn't, well, I guess in your frame of reference, yes, it was just a job. It was another picture. It was a picture that he wanted to do the very best he could with. He had good actors. Didn't matter they were white, black, green, yellow. To him, that was all the same. They were actors. The important thing... Yeah was not what color they were, but were they good actors? Jimmy Shigeta was a good actor. He's the best. (laughs) Nancy Kwan wasn't half bad. Riko Sata was good. Irene Sue, still a friend of mine. Still want to revisit it for Jack Sue. I haven't watched it since I've been aware of his career. It's so good. (laughs) He's fun. He's fun. You will hear him sing a song in which he inserted a word that my father used all the time. And I won't tell you what it is because it'll be obvious when you hear it. (laughs) Suddenly, a Chinese guy coming out with a German expression. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, you'll notice it, Kim. Okay. It's been years since I've, yeah. Kim will watch Flower Drum Song, I will watch Harvey, and then we will revisit and talk about how we both crossed these movies off the list. Call me back. I definitely will, yes. If only so that I can can feel better about missing one of the landmark Henry Coster films that I probably should have seen a million years ago, but I didn't. Um, I have a softball I'd like to ask. Do you have a favorite film of your father's work? Is there something that just encaptures him that you would recommend to everybody? There are two for different reasons. There's A Hundred Men and a Girl with Deanna Durbin and Leopold Stokowski. And there is No Highway in the Sky, which is, if you look at it, have you ever seen it? I've not, no. Jimmy Stewart and Marlena Dietrich. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay, you already got me. I'm in. <laughs> and every out-of-work British actor they could dig up was <laughs> not in London. No Highway in the Sky is a lesson in filmmaking. When you see the picture, you'll see what I mean. I was working on a picture in 
San Diego. It was the last day of filming. And we had about a half a day's shooting and then we were going to put all the stuff in the trucks and go on back to LA. We could get back to LA easily before five. So we would be off the books. We wouldn't get overtime. It was fine. And we were in a hotel in the presidential suite or whatever it was, their biggest suite in the hotel. We were shooting in the living room and we had all the extra lamps and everything in the bedroom and and the equipment, the grips and electricians were going in and bringing stuff out and rigging, so forth. And the bedroom is where the bathroom was. So you had to go through the bedroom to get to the bathroom. And for some reason, the crew had to go to the bathroom from time to time. Something that I wish they would take out of the union contract. because <laughs> Waste of time as far as I'm concerned. Anyway, people were going into the bedroom to go through to go to the bathroom. And somebody turned on the TV set in the bedroom. And no highway in the sky came on. It was just beginning. And the director happened to go through because he had to go use the facilities. And he came out and he saw the picture. And he realized we only have maybe an hour of shooting here. And this was 11 in the morning. So we have plenty of time to wrap up, get back to Los Angeles. He called the crew and he said, come on in, sit down, watch the picture. And then we'll finish. And they watched No Highway in the Sky. He said he was the guy who would know because he taught. He said, watch this carefully because it's a lesson in movie making. Definitely. Oh, that's cool. It's true. So he stopped our production. And he didn't know that I was his son. He didn't know that I was dad's son. I told him after the picture was... Bob, I thank you so much for taking time out of your day to chat with us. It's such a thrill to be sitting with you. For listeners who want to learn more about you or get in touch, what's the best way you are on Facebook? Well, I'm not sure that I should reveal this to somebody who has never (laughs) seen Harvey. I know. I know. (laughs) Harvey or not, I'm accessible. I'm in the phone book. I may not pick up the phone just (laughs) Leave me a message. I'll call you back. That's going to close out this edition of Ticklish Business. You can send all your thoughts on Henry Coster, Bob Coster, which movies I should see. Why have I not seen Harvey? Email that to us at ticklishbiz at gmail.com. Or you can tweet that to us at ticklish underscore biz. You can reach out to me on Twitter at journeys underscore film. Kimberly Pierce, where can fans find and get in touch with you? I am probably on Twitter most of anything at kpierce624. You can find me hanging around the Ticklish Business page as well, webpage. Feel free to comment on anything and let us know and I'll definitely read that. Yes, please head over to our shiny website, journeysinclassicfilm.com, where Kim does all the reviews. You can find the show notes. We have a lot of great stuff going on there. And we also have our much-neglected Instagram, which is at ticklishbiz. The podcast is wherever you get your podcasts, including Apple Podcasts. Help us out. Leave us a rating and a review. If we hit 1,000 followers on Twitter, Instagram, we will be giving out two out-of-print 
Fox box sets that I found in my house. If you want to get us closer to giving those away, be sure to follow us, send us a review, keep the lights on here. We are also on Audible, Spotify, all those other places. As always, if you want to support us with your money, you can do that at our Patreon, which is patreon.com slash ticklishbiz. We do all sorts of special edition interviews. We're going to be seeing an interview with Lonnie Anderson in the next couple of weeks, as well as various interviews with some great authors that will be up there exclusively for a time before they come to the proper show feed. And we also have our bonus shows based on a true podcast where William Viviani and I talk about how Hollywood talks about itself we're getting ready to record our latest episode on a Lucio Fulci movie about making a Lucio Fulci movie. It sounds weird. I haven't watched it yet. And we also have double features with Adam Kautzer, where him and I talk about the movies that Hollywood makes again and again and again. We're prepping an upcoming episode on the dueling versions of Little Shop of Horrors. We have our latest episode out on The Three Musketeers. So we will be back next time. We hope to see you then. Till then.